0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Healing Confessionals. Today's episode will be a little different, as it is a healed confessional with mom, grandma, podcaster, author, and satanic ritual abuse survivor, Lisa Meister. Lisa's story of healing is inspirational, but it may be difficult to listen to for individuals who have experienced childhood abuse themselves. Lisa is a true survivor, and her vulnerability and strength shines through. I loved our conversation, and I hope you will too. Hello, welcome. I have Lisa Meister here a podcast host and author of Only God Rescued Me, My Journey from Satanic Ritual Abuse. And she has so graciously agreed to come on and educate me and my audience about Satanic Ritual Abuse, as well as share some of her healing journey as it relates to EMDR, because she, I had heard her talk on another podcast that EMDR was a big component of healing those traumatic memories. And I'm just really excited to hear that um, how she recovered. Okay, so thank you so much, Lisa, for being here. Thanks
1: for having me, Elise. I've been excited about this.
0: Yeah, me too. So what I wanted to talk about, just a little bit, like I said, you have much more expertise on this than I do. Is, you know, even me as a therapist and someone interested in this topic, you know, the the common narrative is satanic ritual abuse was debunked in the '80s. Um, it was just a hysteria and a panic and you know, maybe there was two real cases, but then everybody and their brother thought they had experienced it, and it, it's not really a real thing, and we have to be careful that therapists aren't planting false memories, and out of that emerged the false memory syndrome, and I guess I would be very interested to hear your response to that.
1: Well, it goes to several levels. It's not an easy easy answer, obviously. It, it happened to me so I know it's true. Yeah. You you know, the, the best way to go into something like this is find firsthand experience and start talking to the survivors of it. And from that, we can extrapolate and start understanding what happened back in the 80s. So if people say that there's a false memory syndrome, are they saying that it never existed? Are they saying that there's one or two people, maybe it happened to, but that's it? You know, what exactly is it that they're saying? And, and it's really important to go there. So the whole idea of the false memory syndrome, it's it's fascinating to study it because it was actually started by people who were accused of being perpetrators in satanic ritual abuse. So they started this whole thing of this isn't real, therapists are putting this in the the head of these survivors, yada, yada, yada. Well, I'd never been in therapy. Mm -hmm. Throughout my life, I'd never been in therapy. I had a lot of issues, had a lot of problems, never went to therapy. And then I started falling apart, started having flashbacks, then started going to therapy. So when my parents got wind of this, they even started the whole, they jumped immediately to false memory syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now, like the first time I started talking to my mom, she knew something was going on. And I said, I've started to deal with some things I hadn't dealt with before. My dad was a nasty man, always was. Mm-hmm. Myriad of things that could have been. Yeah. He immediately said, it never happened. Like what never happened? You know, like, okay, let's go into depth here. What never happened? She wouldn't, she would never explain it. And she'd say, you can't think about this. You don't want your kids to be taken away. Well, the false memory syndrome, the therapist put it in your head, the, the whole threat of your kids will be taken away if you start speaking about this are all cult active Parts of keeping survivors pushed down so we can't speak we're afraid to speak nobody to listen to us as we speak and they were able to propagate that on a major scale when the pan- when the satanic panic happened in the 80s so they took these preschoolers which started the whole thing mm-hmm. who all had very similar stories you know like preschoolers, even when they experience very similar things, will tell you very different things, very different stories. So if mm-hmm. you have some major elements that are the same among a bunch of really small kids, you had better start listening to them in what they're saying, because I've had small kids and I like, You can try to get them to talk about a certain thing or not talk to them about a certain thing, but they're not all that controllable because the way their (laughs) minds work,
0: you know. (laughs) As a mother of others, I agree. (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we had these kids and they all had similar stories. It was all pushed down and they made it sound as if nothing came of it. And then they said, oh, now all these people are coming forward, claiming all this stuff. So the question is: if we just started making this stuff up and coming forward, what were we gaining from it? Because as society, we are pushed back against really hard for mm-hmm. satanic ritual abuse. It's like any other abuse will be accepted. People will have empathy and understanding, you know, they understand counseling, they understand. You know, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. But as soon as you say satanic ritual abuse, people are like, Whoa, I don't deal with that. Yeah. I even went to a spiritual uh, conference at our church. They say, we deal with all abuses here. So they're going through abuses and dealing with this abuse after that abuse. It's like, okay, this is great. Maybe somebody can finally help me. And then they get to, and there's something called satanic ritual abuse, but that's really too intense. So we don't talk about it here. Mm -hmm. I'm Like you've got to be kidding me. Nobody will help me. So we don't have anything that we gain by saying it. Right. You know, it's not a, ooh, now I'm famous because I can say this happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, We tend to have a lot of mental problems because of the abuse. We tend to have a lot of emotional problems. We have have trouble trusting people. There's just a lot of issues that we have in our life that stem because we really are survivors of satanic ritual abuse. And we really gain no positives from being survivors for it. So after the satanic panic, when it first started coming out, in the first three years, they had over 300,000 people come forward to police stations saying, I am also a survivor of SRA. And again, it's like, "Oop, that's satanic panic. We don't have anything to do with that. And all the people were pushed away. Mm -hmm. And that's a travesty because that meant that this continued and now we have more generations that are survivors of right I'm from the 70s. If in the 80s they could have faced it, maybe I could have gotten help back then.
0: Yeah, well, and something that I I recently read a book by Colin Ross, and it was written in 1995 about satanic ritual abuse, and he's a clinician that worked with it and saw it quite a bit, and one of the things he talked about is how difficult it was to get any accurate data about it because like you're saying if people are coming to police stations and the police are just saying oh no no we don't deal with that here well then how do we collect data so even if some of those people were were lying like you said there's no secondary gain to to be a fake victim of satanic ritual abuse but let's just imagine that there's some people out there doing that even so you can't even collect that data so I think it's, it's kind of hard to identify or to say a problem exists or it doesn't exist when people are just kind of pretending like it doesn't or.
1: <laughs> yeah, or and we live in a statistically fat society where unless you have statistics to back up what you're talking about, you have no right to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to look at it unless you have statistics to back it up.
0: Yeah. So it's kind of a chicken or the egg
1: situation. Yeah. Yeah. We're very stuck. Now it's interesting because if you talk to my husband who was there when some of these flashbacks were happening, you know, he can explain to you that it's not someone sitting around going, Whoa, I think this happened to me. It, it doesn't happen <laughs> like that. There is like an extreme emotional. Are. You are yeah. terrified. You are cowering in a corner. You are trying to cover your head. You're crying hysterically. You cannot get control of yourself you know, I had it happen to me in the middle of a church service. I had it happen to me in the middle of a grocery store. I mean, it's not a controllable sort of, oh, I think I'm going to sit and think and, hmm, wow, that was really bad. You know, it just doesn't happen that way. Right. Right. Yes. There's just so many ways to look at it. And if you start thinking through it, it's kind of crazy. So then if you say it never happens, It's like, well, you know, we do have some actual cases now where they are saying that there is abuse with ritualistic elements. So they don't come out and say, SRA, you have to learn how to start looking through notes and seeing what happens, but they really aren't covered. So like Columbus, Ohio, I saw recently, they had, uh, maybe it was a year ago, a guy got caught and he had pictures of SRA. Mm-hmm. He got caught with it, so there was a blurb in the newspaper about it, caught my attention, fascinating, whoa, never anything else came of it, never saw any more, you know, nobody went and pursued it, started asking questions, it just gets, it just disappears from the
0: media. Yeah, so for those who don't have any clue what SRA is, I I know you put a I follow you on Instagram and you'd put out a definition recently and I was just wondering if you could share that definition as well as any other just basic background information that people might not know that have heard very little to nothing about this topic.
1: It is an extremely sadistic sexual, physical, emotional, spiritual abuse of a child for the purpose of worshiping Satan and it happens through blaspheming God by mocking the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so it's for me like I'd be taking my dad was a pharmacist Mm -hmm. so I would be drugged and taken from my bed in the middle of the night I'd be wrapped in a blanket put in the car and I'd kind of wake up either dressed in a white robe or tied down on a table um and you know, then there would be a whole heap of different kinds of scenarios that would happen. And And they're all going to be horrible and they're all going to have pain involved. They're all going to have sexual abuse involved. They're all going to have the child dissociating is part of it. So um, the child's going to be splitting into these parts because there's so many things coming at them at once. They can't handle it all. So these diso- they start dissociating, and when the kids get su- suggestible, then they start trying to program, trying to get behaviors from the child, trying to get reactions from the child. They try to manipulate, control the child. Yep. So these children are abused maybe once a week, sometimes maybe more, throughout their growing up period. And it creates... Uh, kind of like a day versus night scenario where during the day you're going to be high functioning because you have to be, you're going to be forced to be successful and, you know, making your family look good. Mm -hmm. So if you get good grades, you're in sports, you know, I started working a job when I was in fifth grade. It's like, I, I was really good at what I did, but I was also, being abused at night so a lot of people go oh come on you can't be successful if you're being abused it's like no that you know that's just so manipulative Mm -hmm. they have so much control so uh it's it's complicated to look at it's complicated to unpack but at the same time you know I I would wake up and you know I'd have these ticks where my eyes would just blink incessantly and I wouldn't be able to stop them Mm -hmm. or um you know, I would have physical maladies that were inexplicable, yeah. you know, and uh, just so many things through the years that, you know, it, it just wouldn't make sense to me. And I'd put them in boxes kind of in my head and just kind of store them away with all these things that don't make sense. So by the time I was 29, which is when all the memories started coming back for me, I started opening this box and looking at all the pieces and going, Oh, my life makes sense now. Now that I understand there is this whole Other part thing. that I didn't get, you know, now I understand my life. Now the way I responded to things, the things that happened to me make sense. And then I was able to put my life back together and then I could start healing.
0: hmm Yes. Um, now I think some people might misidentify SRA as just really bad abuse and so i think it's it's important that i like the definition you give because it has a very specific purpose like sra has a very specific purpose and a very specific agenda or um yeah i would just say purpose or agenda whereas other people can go through horrific abuse and and there may be a an agenda in that situation as well but it's it's not as specifically directed? Am I making sense? Like an organized agenda. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: They know what they're doing. They know why they're doing it. And, you know, the perpetrators in these groups are working in tandem together to mm-hmm. pull off what they're doing.
0: Yes. Yep. I like how you put
1: that. Okay. And so it's, uh, the, the, the sadism part of it, it's important to understand too, that these are sociopaths. These are psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And, and they get together and they get to make all these scenarios with no repercussions to what they're doing mm-hmm. and that's an outlet for them as well
0: yeah yeah so you say you you're you're going through life go, doing relatively well like you said you're getting good grades um at the, by that point you were married right by 29 had a couple of children as well Yes. You said you just kind of just started kind of falling apart. Can you say just a little bit about that?
1: I I went to a top university. I graduated with distinction. I went on to be a school teacher and we had kids and, and I was homeschooling them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as you know, it, it was always this feeling that I'm broken. There's something really wrong with me, and I just don't know what it was. And that was, it, and I could feel these like balls of emotion just pulling up through my chest, and just like they, they were going to burst out. And so I would get super busy. I'd put on a lot of noise in the house. I'd get my kids playing and running around and shrieking, and try to get those feelings pushed back down again. Yep. And for years, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And but by the time I was 29, my five-year-old at the time was my oldest, my daughter, and I realized that she was in trouble
0: mm-hmm.
1: and with my father, and that's what caused it to finally burst out. I had to protect her, and I didn't know what I needed to protect her from. Yeah. So that's when it all burst out, and I started having to look at it.
0: It was kind of like your system was saying, okay, maybe it was a benefit to not remember or know this stuff. But now we need to know because we need to protect our daughter.
1: And I really don't think if it hadn't been for her, I certainly would not have let it out. I'm sure it would have burst by itself at some point. But, you know, looking back at it now, I'm, you know, glad is a really bad term, but I really am grateful it came out so that I could protect my kids from him. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't for them, I would never have. Gone into that. I mean, the healing of it is just so horrendous. It's not as bad as going through it the first time, but it is so close. Yeah, you just don't think you're going to survive it. You don't want to survive it. It's like I can't. I just can't do this.
0: Yeah, that's something I feel like in the EMDR community. And EMDR is a miracle. It's wonderful. It's a gift to all who need healing. But I think sometimes when we talk about it. It's the, sometimes we don't talk enough about how difficult it can be in the midst of it, especially in the case of complex lifelong trauma or someone that has um, dissociative identity disorder. It's you know, I think you would say that the healing was worth it and you're glad to come out on the other side. but the process the process of it for you and your I know you mentioned your children and your husband, you know um, it it's it is a an intense process.
1: <laughs> that it was. It, EMDR is tough. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a rough process. You know, the whole idea when I was going through it was we're on the train, we're going by, we're just yep. looking at the trauma, but I could never <laughs> stay on that train. You know, it's always sucked <laughs> into my eyes and couldn't get out of, you know, I mean, it was, yeah. it was a mess for sure.
0: You know, my um, poor therapist. I'm a little curious. What, what years were you going through EMDR therapy? Oh boy. Ah, uh, I've been 15 years from ago
1: from now. So where are we? 20s middle, like 2005
0: ish. Yeah. In there. Well, and I will say that even since I got trained, which would have been 2011, I feel like the EMDR community has grown a lot and recognized more. Like you said, that it, it can't just, be on the train and you just ride the train. (laughs) Uh, We've we've had to really level up um to deal with more complex trauma. But could you just tell a little bit about how it was presented to you and even your experience of it? Like you said, you you were um your therapist was new to SRA and you said she was willing, willing to do EMDR and willing to do work with you. But just tell me just a little bit about that journey.
1: She was a sweetheart. I mean, I I couldn't find anybody that knew anything about SRA. There just wasn't any. So uh, she actually had a mentor that had worked with some people who was willing to help her as she helped me. So we were kind of figuring it out together. And it was certainly a learning experience, not a great one for her, but she stuck in there. She, you know, we did it once a week and I could only afford to pay for it once a month. Mm -hmm. So she did it three times a month for free for me. And she was so traumatized by it. She had to go into counseling to get through. I didn't ask her if she did EMDR herself to get through her EMDR sessions with me, but I wouldn't be surprised. So I went from, uh, she's not being able to talk about the abuse, like a specific, like if she would say, tell me about a ritual, I would be stuttering I couldn't put sentences together. I went from being an educated woman to, I can't think, you know, that traumatized by it. So we would do a two hour session and at the end of it, I could talk about it. You know, I didn't feel like I was falling to pieces. I wasn't stuttering. I mean, the difference between the beginning and the end of that two hours was astounding. Now I, I would be... take me several days to be able to pull myself back together and function again and then we'd be about ready to start the next session so it was (laughs) it was a grueling few years you know it was a roller coaster ride for me and for my whole family and god bless my you know my counselor she's like i have this tool i think we should try it yeah and it's like to me it's like okay we're moving things from back you know the back where deep memories stored, we're pulling it up to cognitive. Okay, I hold these. You know, she said they're eggs that vibrate in one hand and the other. Yep. And like, okay, <laughs> this is really weird, but you know, I am so desperate. Mm-hmm. I need help. I will try this. Yeah. And it worked.
0: You know, it really did. So you must have had enough successes soon enough that you didn't turn back and say, no, no, thank you. <laughs> no, I didn't. The stuff is not for me, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and not every session ended up great right? You know, as, as the flashbacks got really, really bad. You know, I, I got to the end of one session and I couldn't get out, you know, I, I was stuck in the ritual. I couldn't get out of the ritual. I was literally screaming <laughs> and she's like, I hate to tell you this, but her session is over. Oh! so trying to pull myself together and I walk into her waiting room and a friend of mine is sitting out there oh my (sighs) nightmare never stops it just goes from one thing to another so I mean not every session ended up neat and tidy right but but the majority of them did so we went through like the individual memories and then we started going through themes of memories Mm -hmm. like um in rituals, they use rodents. You know, for me, there's like mice involved. So we looked through, we just EMDR'd mice, you know, or different themes yep. like that. And, you know, kind of went through them that way as well. So we, we went through it through, in different ways, which was interesting.
0: How did you and or your husband or family kind of take care of yourself in between those sessions? Because like you said, I can imagine there were some some rough days and nights. Right,
1: and and we had four kids, so, Mm -hmm. and I homeschooled, so they were always at home, so um, we would do the sessions Thursday afternoon, and we would make that pizza movie night, so that I could come home, I didn't have to cook, there was no cleanup, nobody was going to talk to me, because we were just going to watch a movie, so that was a way we got through the worst part, which was that evening, yeah, you know, and then, you know, in the morning, I'd be able to get up, okay, let's do we kind of made like a Friday session of homeschooling to make it a little less intense from the rest of the week and make it a little more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And um, then we just try to get through the weekend and be ready to go again Monday morning. So the kids were very understanding, you know, mommy's very sad. Mommy's having a hard time. You know, we need to be quiet for mommy. It was all, you know, kind of a running theme. Yeah. But you know, and and I was really worried about them. But in the long run, my kids are now eighteen to twenty seven, very compassionate young adults. You yeah. know, very helpful to other people. And you know, it's like okay, you know, we turned out all right.
0: Yeah. So could you talk just a little bit about um, what you would feel? I think I think sometimes for therapists, they, um, especially new EMDR therapists, they're worried about what is going to happen for the client and i think that's certainly a worthwhile consideration it sounds like you were able to keep it together enough but i still think it's it's good to hear for people to to know what it, what it's like in between those sessions sometimes
1: you're very tired you know you you really feel like you've just run a marathon
0: mm-hmm.
1: so you're exhausted um, thinking is very disjointed Yeah, trying to figure anything out is just very, especially the first two days, it took two days really to recover. Um, I think doing it once a week was probably too much. I wish we, looking back on it, I would have put more time in between it, yeah. but, you know, we were trying to soldier through, you know, to get it done so we can be done with it. And and I'm realizing now that SRA is is really a healing journey. It's not a destination. Yeah. You know, I, I'm 52 now. I still I, you know, I've started having new flashbacks in the last few months, starting to deal some stuff again, but it's like I have so much time into this now that I I can look at it and say, yeah, you know, that's pretty awful. And that's a bummer. <laughs> I mean, it's understated, yeah. but yeah. it's like, yes, that happened. All right, how do I deal with it? Mm -hmm. you know how do I feel it how do I
0: move past it how do I integrate it into my my narrative right my life and who I am and what I've experienced right
1: where back then I really fought everything tooth and nail no this can't be right no there's no way this could have happened just really fighting it but another thing about SRA is that part of their whole ritual is set up to make you believe things that can't happen are happening so that when you start looking at it, you're like, oh, I'm just going crazy because there's no way that could have happened. So, you know, I call it a smoke and mirror show is what they do. And they do that to confuse you as a child. But also, you know, like if you go and tell somebody of these things that couldn't have happened, they're like, oh, you know, you're just being crazy. But when you're an adult, you know, some, some people have been institutionalized because of it yeah and they're really just telling you what they saw as a child and they're taking it as look this person has extreme mental issues let's put them away and they get put away and it's very sad
0: yeah yeah I think it's um interesting I I can't remember there's some EMDR big win and they talk about you know at the end of EMDR I think any kind of trauma healing it's um you feel what you feel and you know what you know. And it sounds kind of like you said it at first, it was so difficult to kind of face what you felt and face what you knew to be true. It was just a lot of questioning of yourself. And it sounds like now when those flashbacks come up, like you said, you're able to just kind of acknowledge like, okay, yep, that's another piece of my story. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you know, once you realize how diabolical they are and how far they're willing to go, it's like it's it's it you know, might be a little bit different, but it's all the same.
0: Mm-hmm. And as part of your um, outreach work, you have a podcast and you talk to other survivors. And I know something you said is that so many survivors, you know, they've never met another survivor before and they realize how similar their stories are.
1: That's it. It took me, I think, about 12 years before I finally talked to another survivor. Mm -hmm. I never found a counselor who had ever met a survivor or ever knew about it in the first place. Nobody talked about it back then. And finally, I just, I was so nervous. We had the internet at this point. It's like, I just have to find a group somewhere. I need to find somebody who knows about it. And uh, I found a a survivor group. I didn't know if it was real or not, you know, because it could be just a group trying to find us and hurt us, you know, you don't know, yeah, yeah. but I, do- I dove in and I gave it a shot and I've made some friends. And in in this group, we could put down certain memories that we had, certain things that happened. So I would put some up and then someone say, oh yeah, that happened to me, only this happened this way. And or oh yeah, that happened to me too. Or the healing that came from that, that we are not alone. And, you know, you feel so isolated in SRA, number one, because either people won't believe you, they've never heard of it, no counselors have heard of it, you're isolated. Or, you know, at churches, a lot of churches are go, oh, that's just that's just the demonic, you, you know, that, is, that isn't real. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes you feel really bad. So to find out that there's actually this big group of us and we can talk and then we find out that we have that in common, like 80% of what we talk about is the same. Yeah, you know, we get 20% group flair, I think, you know, mm. to do things their own way. And the rest of it is the same. And it, when you go into voodoo, when you go into witchcraft, I mean, there's all sorts of different versions of it around the world. There's still common to pain, that. there's still sexual abuse, they're still trying to get them to as close to death and bringing them back as they can.
0: Mm. You know,
1: whether they're using Christian symbols in it or something else in it it's still all about the same sort of thing.
0: Yeah, kind of speaking to your isolation, I've had a couple experiences with clients in the hospital where I felt like I, I was not being understood by the staff as I was trying to advocate for my client and feeling very aggravated, feeling very frustrated. And I thought, well, I'm feeling this way. Like how, how can my poor client be feeling? You know, I'm feeling isolated and misunderstood and alone in this setting, like, I'm, I'm not even the one that's, you know, locked up here right now, so. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I know from, I haven't been locked up, thank God, Mm -hmm. but my, you know, I have a lot of friends that have, and they're very, a lot of these places are not trauma-informed at Mm -hmm. all, Mm -hmm. and the way they're treated is just so triggering. It's just sad, yeah, and I don't think there's excuse for that in psych clinics, you know, I mean, there's just not,
0: right oh so like you said your your therapist was very sweet and kind and devoted and dedicated um what what were some other qualities that your therapist had that made you feel safe made you feel um willing and able to do this really really soul-bearing work i mean goodness
1: she was very gentle always Mm -hmm. you know she was never harsh with me Um, If I was starting to lose it, she's like, Lisa, you know, can you feel the texture of the couch? You know, she would just ground me very gently. Um, She never made me feel bad. Like part of rituals is when you start getting older, they make you do bad things, Mm -hmm. you know, and she was very clear on this was not your choice. You were forced to do this. You know, you are not at fault for this. Uh, She was also gentle with... You know, like my house was a mess. It yeah. Cleaning, like you know, like my husband always said he could tell how I was doing by how clean or cluttered the counter was. Yeah. Because when I when I couldn't think, I couldn't like I would just stare at the counter. It's like I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with this pile. I don't know what to do with this piece, and and she would just be like, "That's okay, you know, that'll eventually go away. This is just a season. You can get through this. You're, you know, just very asserting and calm yeah. you know like this is not where we're going to be for the rest of your life which is the way i felt it's like we yeah. are never getting out of this you know yeah. she, she held on to hope for me because i couldn't yeah. which was very helpful yeah she well, showed, reminded me of where we were going you know that we had to. De- you know we were going somewhere with this we and then she would remind me of how far we've come and let's look at where you were six months ago yeah. you know let's look at how much better you're doing now that sort of thing
0: well, and I, I really liked on, I think one of your podcast episodes where you're just giving kind of basic advice about someone who's trying to recover from SRA. And you talked about, you know, can you find a survivor that's five years ahead of you in their journey? You know, kind of like you said, she, she held on your hope while you couldn't. And I think that would be another form of finding another survivor that can say, yep, I've been through that and I survived. So can you, <laughs> right. but yeah. both the trauma and the healing of it.
1: And finding someone who's with you know, kind of at the spot you are, mm-hmm. so that you can commiserate with each other. You you need someone that let me tell you how horrible today was and be able yeah. to do that with, and then go to someone else is like, I know it's horrible, but yeah, you know, so you, yeah. Need, you know, you kind of need both.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: having your counselor who's gonna say, you've got this, you know, I'm gonna lead you. I'm going to lead you. You can trust me to take you where you need to go. You know, and to me, that's a team. You have to have a team to survive. You have to have a team to heal and to get to the other side. And it takes a lot of people. Everybody needs a lot of people in their team.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your team. Who was on your team?
1: I had an amazing husband. Mm -hmm. He just, from the very first flashback, he was just very firmly on my side. Yeah. And Through you know, we had seven years before we were married. Seven before the flashback started, we had dated two years, I believe, before then, before we got married. So, uh, you know, he understood my family dynamics as they were. You know, I my family was really crazy, just always was, and uh, so kind of like through those seven years, we were starting to create more and more distance between me and us and them and uh then whenever all of this started when I would say I need to go and confront them he's be right there with me you know I need to go and talk to their pastor he would be right there with me I need to uh go back to the city where this happened to me and prove it to myself he went with me you know whatever it was that I felt I needed to do he just dove in it's like all right how are we going to make this happen yeah that And I know that that's just absolutely amazing. And I wish everybody had that. Mm -hmm. Um, We'd promised each other before we married that we would never divorce. But I, you know, so I knew when the SRA stuff was coming that he wouldn't leave me, but I was afraid he would leave me emotionally. And he didn't do that either. So Mm -hmm. that was amazing. Um, My kids were on my team as they got older. Like Halloween is very, Very difficult for survivors. All the, because like the people in these groups wear these grim reaper type robes with the big hoods covering their heads, so their head, their face is in a shadow. So you can't even see that they're human. So uh the blood, the gore, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of stuff that's around for years, I just completely fall apart. So, like if like the kids are running the store for me. Or we'd be in a store that had to go in. They're like, mom, look to the left. Mom, look to the right. You know, sort of that sort of stuff. Or uh, if other kids would come over and they would want to watch something. No, we can't watch that. That's too hard on my mom. You know, like sheltering me there or sometimes even telling their friends, you know, this is what happened to my mom and we protect her this way. So we can't talk about certain things when she's around. And so, they were on my team. I had um, some really good pastors that didn't quite understand what was going on, but they were willing to give me space. They're willing to pray with us. Uh, I even had one pastor willing to go and talk to my parents with us to kind of be the intermediary. It's like, that was amazing. Yeah. So, like, friends were a little bit more difficult because I really didn't have a lot of capacity to be close to anybody then. And, you know, how do you explain anything? Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, we weren't, I wasn't maintaining real close friendships back then, but um, my husband's mom was also very strongly on our side and helping, facilitating, watching the kids when I was going to therapy and, you know, doing everything she could to help us along the way. So I had a very full life that way. Counselors, I even had a couple doctors, like um, I've had, intractable migraines pretty much my whole life. So I had this wonderful neurologist and uh, I also had a stroke when I was 37 and just like all these neurological like uh, blindness that would come and go and just crazy stuff. Mm
0: -hmm. So she
1: would take this very thick file that I had and she would take it home over the weekend trying to figure out is there something we haven't done? Is there something we haven't tried? And so like eight years into having her, oh by the way, I have severe trauma in my background. And she just stopped and slowly looked at me. She's like, <laughs> why have you never told me this? You know, and then yeah. she was very firmly on my side. And I wish I had told her earlier, but I was just so afraid. I yeah. don't know how they're going to respond. So she was actually, you know, so she was on my team as well. So
0: what about, um, obviously, the name of your book and podcast, Only God Rescued Me, um, how did how has your faith and your spirituality played into your healing journey?
1: It was everything, because SRA is satanic in nature. Uh, they're channeling demons. They're talking in demon voices. There's things that are happening that can't happen, things floating, you know, stuff going on. So, it's spiritual in nature and it really takes God to break a lot of things that they're doing. So uh, a lot of people that say to me, how do you, like so many SRA survivors just can't heal. They just try to maintain and get through life. And it's very complicated, very difficult for them. Mm -hmm. When you add God into it, it's what can break the power of what was done against you and and what can actually heal you and get you from being terrified constantly. Like literally every day on the couch, crying in terror, someone's going to come and kill me, you know, just convinced of it and being able to get out of that panic. And it's like, okay, God's going to protect me. God is with me, you know, and being able to get the fear out. And, and I don't know how to get fear out in any other way than God. So he was able to do that and set me free. And, and I'm really in a place where I have joy in life. I have peace inside. I can sleep at night. You know, I'm still having flashbacks, still dealing with stuff. And I don't know if that ever goes away. But with God, I have this strength of, I can do this and I can reach out to others. I can help them because I can point them to Jesus. Because the whole thing, whether it's voodoo and whatever it is, is by them trying to get people as close to that point of death and bringing them back is ultimately mocking Jesus' death and resurrection. So um, even the Black Panther showed that in the Marvel movie when he needed to go talk to his ancestors, they brought, put him underwater got him to the point of death so he could go talk to his dead ancestors and brought it back. And I was astounded when I saw it. It's like, that's a ritual. Yeah, You know, that's, yeah. that's exactly what a ritual is. And so even in the African religion, again, it's simulating death and bringing him back. And it's like, wow. So to me, because it all comes down to Jesus, you know, Jesus being then the answer, makes sense. And only he can stop what all their, all that they tried to do against me, he can reverse it and bring me to a place where I can enjoy this life that He has given me and blessed me with. Cause for a lot of years, it's like, I wish you would just let me die when I was little. That would have been so much easier, you know, but it's like, okay, I had to live. I had to get through this, but now let's make it worth it. You know, now let's live this life that I have and, and let's try to get the most out of it. And that's what I feel like I'm doing right now.
0: Yeah. So, what does that look like? What does um, getting joy out of life look like for you now?
1: Coffee on the porch in the morning. You know, watching the sunrise because my husband and I wake up extremely early. (laughs) We're usually up like four or five in the morning, so (laughs) we get to watch the sunrise and philosophize about the day and life in general, and. We have a Pomeranian,
0: Mm -hmm. you know, so
1: he adds a lot of joy, soaking in love. It's all he does. You know, it's all he cares about is love and playing fetch. And and that's enjoyable. You know, you can, you can, it's like, wow. He enjoys the exact same things that he does every day. And that's all he does every day. And he still enjoys it just as much as he did the first day of his life. You know, Yeah. Uh, my kids are grown now and we're having grandchildren So I get to see another generation. You know, if I died when I was little, they wouldn't be here. Right. So uh, we have our third one due here shortly. And it's just amazing Uh, being able to write, being able to have a podcast, having a voice, being able to give a voice to other survivors. It's like, tell me your story. You know, let's, let's get it out there because to me, the, the best way to expose SRA is by a preponderance of stories. So I I get to do that. I get to have a podcast and nobody can say, oh, you can't talk about that. Yeah. You know, because it's mine. So right. I've been Listener, on there. And,
0: listen or don't, but yeah. it's here.
1: You know, like this is your podcast. Let's talk about what you want to talk about. It's wonderful. Yeah, You know, there's there's freedom in that. And uh, I love words. So writing yeah. is just, being able to write my memoir is wonderful. I've got my second book <laughs> almost done, but out ready to get out.
0: Uh, bring you back to talk about your second book.
1: <laughs> yeah, but like that, just the joy of creating. I like to write poetry. For me, like in the worst places of my healing, when I couldn't express myself, my therapist realized I could write. And yep. she's like, go write about um, the little girl inside because I couldn't access her. Yep. So I just go start writing about her. You know, and it's like, when I couldn't talk about it, I could write about it it's like, I don't know how I feel. And I'd go and write and go, oh, that's how I
0: feel. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: exactly how I
0: feel. (laughs) Part of me knows how I feel. I just have to listen to her. Yeah. So I love to write.
1: You know, just the process is fun for me. And uh, my husband's a musician. So now we're trying to write some worship music together, which is really funny. So uh, we have a little bit of uh, creative differences on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) in <laughs> different styles
1: yeah because he wants this like 70s feel to it but that means he wants some of the 70s words to it I'm like eh, I don't know about 70s what about you know 80s yeah. words to him so it's kind of funny we go back oh no you can't use that word
0: so <laughs> it is funny we'll see how it ends up I don't know I but, didn't really know, get the I just really get this gotten your sense of safety back And when you have your sense of safety back, that's when you can enjoy those simple pleasures and that, um, just those everyday moments of joy. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Safety is so important to everybody. You know, everybody needs to feel safe from our little babies, you know, all the way through our, our elderly, we need, everybody needs to feel safe. And when that's taken away, it it takes a long time to get it back but it's worth it yeah and to realize that you can be safe
0: Mm -hmm. people
1: is that we are at our most vulnerable when we're children and that as adults you know we're survivors but now we're adults and we have tools and we have ways that we can protect ourselves that we didn't have back then so we don't have to cower in fear like we did as a child and it's learning that we are now adults and we do have that power, I think that also makes a big difference.
0: Yeah. I really liked how you phrased, you know, as a child, dissociation is a gift from God. And as an adult, it gets a little messy. (laughs) So it's time to unwrap the gift as an adult. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, are there any other just final thoughts that you would say to the general public or therapists that this may walk into their office or... potential survivor that's listening I know that's a several different populations I just asked you to speak to but just anything you'd like the general population that might come in contact with this somehow to know. Due to technical difficulties that I wasn't able to overcome in the moment my recording with Lisa stopped early but Lisa's closing message to my audience was satanic ritual abuse is real the sooner that society accepts that the sooner we can roll up our sleeves and help the children that are currently being abused. Thanks once again to Lisa for sharing, and thank you for listening.